Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Over the last few weeks, we've watched the world shut down, and many of us are left wondering, will life ever return to normal? Whatever tomorrow brings, we can count on one thing. With God, the best is always yet to come. And this season of shutdown, we've been given an opportunity to prepare for a new beginning. So let's take this time to get ready to restart. Well, we're in a series called Restart, and it's sort of something that I think is on all of our minds. How can we do the best possible job of sort of rebooting our lives as we sort of come out of this difficult season? And I think there is a sense in which all of us want to take advantage of what's been a difficult time. I mean, we've certainly taken the hit or the jolt from what we've been going through. But I think on the other hand, we all know that there's a sort of opportunity wrapped up in that. That this is a time when we've been forced to sort of shut things down and almost as what we would do to shut down a computer that's misbehaving and start it back or reboot it, this may be an opportunity for us to reset a few things and to make sure that we've got a life that is uh, put together to work the way that God wants it to work. And so we've been talking about principles of exceptional restarts. How do you restart your life in a way that is going to be wise and meaningful and lead you down the right path? And we've had several different principles that we've covered, but this week I have to go to a, a deeply personal place, maybe even a little bit of a raw spot for you or for someone in your family, because I wanna talk about the toll that the sort of shutdown takes on us and the importance of being aware of that toll and doing something about it, because the principle for this week is that you can't restart when you're burned out. And what do I mean by being burned out? See, when we go through stress as individuals, there's a, a God-given ability to sort of adapt to that stress, to sort of bear up underneath the strain that we're going through. And as long as it's sort of short term, it's amazing the adaptability that God has given us to sort of manage the really big difficulties that come at us in life. As long as it's limited, as long as it's time limited, as long as it's limited in scope, we can really rise to the occasion. I think all of us have been amazed sometimes when we've gone through really stressful situations, how well we did going through that. But when that strain that we're going through is chronic and it just doesn't end and there's no end in sight and it hits us every day from a different angle in a different way and causes more and more sort of compounded strain, eventually it can lead us to a point where we're just totally exhausted, totally used up, sort of feeling anxious, depressed, and just really burned out. And what happens when you get burned out is that suddenly you don't feel like yourself anymore. And your family doesn't really get the real you anymore. And the work that you do doesn't really have everything that you would normally bring to it. It's like, it's like you fundamentally 
changed because when you completely exhaust a person, they do fundamentally change. And really the scripture says something about this. Even Jesus says something about this. If we go to Matthew, and this is in chapter five, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. And he's talking about believers. He said, believers are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Well, Bible scholars over the years have argued (laughs) uh, in a good spirit. They've argued over exactly what does this mean? What does it mean for salt to lose its flavor? There's some sort of inherent questions in that. But I think if we just zoom out and take a macro view of this question, uh, or at least of this statement, what we have to say is it is possible for God followers to get so sapped of their energy that they lose the essence of what makes them exceptional in this world. They sort of lose the essence of of what causes them to be making a huge impact. The Bible is saying, what happens when the salt loses its flavor? And that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about burnout. Now, in order to really answer the question of how do you deal with this, and especially how do you deal with it during a shutdown, we're gonna talk about one of my favorite Bible characters. And as a matter of fact, we may be going to just about my favorite story in the scripture, as somebody who has studied burnout both as a pastor and studied it from sort of a social science perspective, I don't think there's any place in the scripture that is as relevant as where we're going today. We're gonna talk about the prophet Elijah. Now, I talked about him a few weeks ago in another one of the messages, but I wanna even introduce you to Elijah even maybe a little bit more than we did last time. Elijah was one of God's prophets, and a prophet had a difficult job. A prophet had a confrontational job. A prophet had a job that required a lot of bravery, and that was to deliver God's messages to God's people, whether or not they wanted to hear it and whether or not it was a popular message. And so in order to be a prophet, you had to be brave and you had to be willing to handle confrontation. And so Elijah was not just that, he was the poster child of that. Elijah wasn't afraid of anything. It certainly didn't seem like he was. He was a guy who was willing to mix it up, to get in there and do what God required him to do in the moment. And you're gonna see that as we take looks at little vignettes of his life. And probably one of the most um, difficult seasons for Elijah was when he had to go talk to the king of Israel and tell him there was gonna be a shutdown. Now you need to know about the people of Israel that at this time in history, their biggest problem was they tended to waffle in their faith between the true God and a, and a, a God named Baal. In this case, Baal was just an idol, not a real God, just something that people had made up. But Baal was the God of sex and prosperity. At the time, there were gods of different things. There was a God of the rain and a God of the sun. And again, all made up human ideas that people had made up of gods. Um, But imagine the popularity of this God that was the God of sex and prosperity. Now, the, the reason that there was sort of a waffling back and forth is because the God of sex and prosperity was fun to worship as far as people were concerned, but not very powerful. And I think this is something that we've learned in our culture, that, that people that live for whatever is fun, um, they may enjoy the ride, but unfortunately it doesn't take them to a place where they wanna be, and that was certainly the case um, at the time. God, on the other hand, had stipulations for what was okay in life, and, and, and he had some very specific rules for life that were designed for people's well-being, 
but he had rules, and yet God was, the true God was very powerful. And so they would see a display of God's power and they would gravitate toward God. But then they would sort of drift back toward the God of sex and prosperity. And by the way, the name Baal means owner of the earth. It was a slap in God's face. It was an insult in God's face. And so this was the situation that, um, that our, our prophet Elijah found himself in. And the king at the time of Israel, Israel had a lot of wicked kings, but the, the king that Elijah was interfacing with was the most evil king of all of Israel's kings. So this is saying something. He was the worst of the worst. The scripture makes that very clear. His name was Ahab. And if that wasn't bad enough, that he was the worst of the worst, um, he married a woman who was worse than he was. And the two of them together created a power center that really ravaged Israel in terms of their belief in God, and it was something that God couldn't just stand aside and not do anything about. And so God would continuously send Elijah in to give these messages that were not going to be well received by Ahab or his wife. And in this case, Elijah has to present the message that there is a shutdown. We're going through a shutdown, and I got to tell you, I have, I have no envy of, of political leaders who have to get up in front of people and announce a shutdown and announce what has to happen in terms of regulations and stipulations and what can't be open and all that sort of thing. I have no envy of being in their position. That's a rough position. But imagine Elijah who has to announce a shutdown and this is not a shutdown from a government. This is not something you can write your congressman about. This is a shutdown that is going to happen and, it's, and it has been decreed by God and Elijah has to be the bearer of the bad news. And check this out. Elijah goes to King Ahab, directly to King Ahab. Elijah's not a scaredy cat. He's going straight for the big man. He goes to Ahab and says, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve. He has to be clear with Ahab because Ahab's a little, he's a little mixed up on gods. So he has to make sure he's very, very clear on who he's talking about. There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. That's a pretty big shutdown. We live in a day and age where uh, if there's a, a drought in a certain area, agricultural downturn in a certain area, well, um, you know, the, supply, the global supply chain sort of fills in wherever the, wherever the gap is, and even though prices may fluctuate, tends to be that, that, you know, there's food on the table. But this is a time when agriculture was the local thing that kept food on the table, and when there was no rain, there was no food on the table. So it was a big, big deal, all the way up the, the chain from people who didn't have a lot to King Ahab in his palace. Now, God wants to take care of Elijah, but I want you to see how Spartan Elijah is because God says to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you. So this is not a guy who's afraid to, I mean, he, he's a guy who's pretty rugged, right? I'm telling you, I, it doesn't sound very tasty to me, whatever birds bring you to eat, but Elijah's okay with this, right? So uh, the, God says, I've commanded you, I've commanded the ravens to bring, bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kareth Brook east of the Jordan and the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening and he drank from the brook. So this is a, this is a pretty rugged guy. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Now, it is at this point in the story that we talked about Elijah three weeks ago. 
And if you didn't see that message, you may want to go back and sort of review what happened there, but I'll give you the the overview. At this point, God tells Elijah to go and meet up with a widow in Zarephath and says, you know, ask her to make you some food. He gets there and this widow says, look, I got nothing left. I've got just a tiny little bit of of flour and water left, flour and oil left, um, and I'm going to make a last meal for me and my son and then we're going to die because we've got nothing left. This famine has just, you know, been terrible on all of us. And Elijah says, well, first make me some, and then I promise God is going to continually make sure that you have uh, the materials to make food. And that happened. Um, And as you also may recall, through God's power, Elijah was able to bring this woman's child back to life after he died later in the story. So Elijah's life, we've got a lot of material that we can't cover here, but the point that I want to make for you here is that Elijah isn't scared. He's willing to do what God says. He's willing to go in and mix it up, whatever God sends him to do. Later on, this is now years down the road, it's time for Elijah to go to Ahab and announce that things are going to change. Now God's going to send rain. It was important to God that Elijah stipulate when the rain was going to stop and when the rain was going to start again. Remember that God's people tended to come toward him when he showed his power, and this was a huge display of power, but God wasn't just going to turn the spigot of the rain back on. He was going to do something more than that. So now there's this sort of showdown that happens between Elijah and Ahab and the prophets of Baal. And just to show you kind of how much uh, Elijah's not afraid of confrontation, check this out. This is in 1 Kings 18. When Ahab sees Elijah coming, he exclaims, so is it really you, you troublemaker of Israel? I mean, here's a guy... Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That was totally the case with Ahab. Ahab had been on record for killing people he just didn't like. So Elijah's showing up to meet up with the king, and the king calls him the troublemaker of Israel. And Elijah doesn't mind mixing it up with him. He says, I've made no trouble for Israel, but you and your family are the troublemakers, for you have refused to obey the Lord, uh, obey the commands of the Lord, and have worshipped the images of Baal instead. So again, I'm, I'm trying to sort of make sure that you're clear. Elijah is not a, he's not a person for whom anxiety is his main feature. He's a guy who gets in there and does what he has to do. Now he says to Ahab, summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. So 850 people who directly oppose him. So he's not afraid to be outnumbered. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, How much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. He's not even afraid of a mob because he's got a lot of people from Israel that he's being this direct with. About noontime, well, actually, let let me make sure that I've sort of set this up for you a little bit. It's at this point that Elijah says, you know, it's time for a showdown. It's time to see who's really God in Israel. So he says, here's what we're going to do. He says to the prophets of Baal, let's, let's set up a little contest here. We're gonna, I'm going to set up an altar with a dead bull as a sacrifice to my God, and you set up an altar uh, with a bull for, as a sacrifice to your God. But you know, we normally light fire to sacrifices, that's what we normally do. But hey, I tell you what, just to make sure that this is all clear and on the up and up, why don't we trust our gods to set fire to the sacrifice? So I tell you what, whichever God sends down fire from heaven on the sacrifice, I think we could all just agree that that truly is God and everybody, including the prophets and the people, all of them agreed, okay, you know, whichever God sends down fire from heaven, that'll be the true God. So uh, Elijah's a gentleman. He says, guys, go first. You know, I mean, your turn first. You, you know, you go ahead and set up and I, I'm just gonna sit over here. I'm gonna watch uh, and uh, go for it. 
Hope it works there for you. And uh, so half the day goes by, and these guys are yelling out to Baal, screaming out to Baal, asking for Baal to send fire to the sacrifice. Nothing's happening. And the reason for that is there is no Baal. Baal doesn't exist, so they're yelling out to nobody. But it is starting to get comical for Elijah. And this is Elijah's strong personality coming through. And at noontime, Elijah begins to mock them. Again, he's not afraid of these guys. He says, look, you're going to have to shout louder because, you know, he is a god. Maybe he's daydreaming. Or perhaps he's gone to the, you know, celestial toilet. Or maybe he's away on a trip or he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. I mean, guys, you're not really trying hard enough, you know? So now the guys start cutting themselves with knives, the Bible said. Now, by the way, what happens when you serve a God that can't help you is that eventually you will begin to do self-destructive things to push that thing into the position of helping you. We've certainly seen this. We talk about the God of sex and prosperity. We've certainly seen this happen. People begin to be self-destructive in an attempt to somehow force that God to provide for them the fulfillment in life that they want it to, to somehow force that God into being whatever it is that they need it to be. And, and we see this in a physical way with the prophets of Baal who, who take knives and it was sort of, sort of become a custom of them, uh, of, of these prophets, that they would cut themselves in an attempt to get the attention of a God that didn't exist. He did this for hours and hours, and at a certain point, Elijah said, all right, enough of that. And he called to the people, he said, come over here, and they all crowded around him as he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. He took 12 stones, they represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. Then he dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the pieces on the wood. All of this is what we would expect. All of this is probably relatively close to what the prophets of Baal did on their side. Built up stones, put the bull on the, on the altar. But now it's going to get a little weird. Then he says, fill four large jars with water and pour the water over the offering in the wood. So he's probably sending these guys to go get seawater, salt water, out of the nearby sea. And, but, but I would just say that if you're wanting something to spontaneously combust, uh, pouring massive amounts of water over it, probably not smart. You know, I mean, this, this dead animal is absorbing so much of this water and it's getting up in the stones and turning the, the, the dirt to mud. And it's just not exactly what you would do if you're planning on having something, you know, combust. After they had done this, he said, all right, do that again. So they go get more jars of water and they pour it over the sacrifice. And then he says, do it a third time. So now they go get some more jars of water and man, they are really dousing this thing. The water was so much that it ran around the altar and even filled the trench. So when, when Elijah dug the trench, this was what he had in mind, was that eventually the water was going to fill in there. At the usual time for offering, the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed a very short prayer, certainly compared to what the prophets of Baal did. O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all of this at your command. O oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. And immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven, burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. So really what was just left was a scorched mark on the earth where all of this stuff was to start with. So you wanna talk about a incredible victory, right? This is winning the Super Bowl. I mean, suddenly you've got all the people falling on their face on the ground and saying, the Lord is God. Yes, the Lord is God. This is what a prophet dreams of. After the, after the years of shutdown, finally it seems like he's getting 
some traction. Then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and killed them there. Again, Elijah's got a, a very strong personality. He's not milk toast. He's not weak. He's taking this on. And it's important because you need to see what happens to him shortly. But I would also say, you want to think about how strong Elijah's personality was. Think about what then happens because then Elijah tells to Ahab, hey, it's finally going to rain. And you're going to want to book it back to Jezreel because it's going to rain so much. It's going to be very difficult for you and your chariots and all that stuff to get back to Jezreel. So go now. And when uh, Ahab starts heading out there, the Lord gave special strength to Elijah and he tucked his cloak into his belt and ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. So you want to talk about, I mean, this is, this is you know, Olympic running. The guy runs ahead of, of Ahab's chariots. Ahab gets home and, you know, uh, he is kind of a weak personality. He tells Jezebel, he, you know, he's just a whiner and he whines to Jezebel about what has happened with the prophets, and especially this really ticks off Jezebel. Those were her preachers. Those were on her payroll. They went to her seminary, right? She, she was the one who ordained them and set them up in ministry, and now they're dead. She's very, very upset. And so she says, I want you to send this message to Elijah. May the gods, and keep in mind, if Elijah's thinking straight, these gods that, that Jezebel is swearing by, don't even exist. But she says, may the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I've not killed you just as you killed them. Well, it's a threat. It's a big threat. But Elijah had been through big threats. It was scary. But Elijah had been scared before. He had somebody out to get him, but man, he'd had tons of people out to get him before. And this was a threat to his life, but he had just been through years of no rain. I mean, God had sustained him in the craziest of ways. Surely Elijah at this point is going to do what he's always done. He's going to stand up for the right. He's going to square his shoulders back. He's going to do what he needs to do. And yet suddenly something snaps inside of Elijah. Something goes wrong. And in the next verse, the Bible says, Elijah was afraid. Well, that's not the Elijah we know, is it? That's not the guy that we've come to understand and appreciate. And on top of that, he fled for his life. He went into Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Now, this is, this is key. Israel at this point is divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom was Israel. To go to Beersheba means he was in the northern kingdom. That was where his ministry was. He had, he had existed in the northern kingdom all this time, and that's where he had been following God's directions. Now he, goes, he leaves the northern kingdom. He goes to the southern kingdom, which is a very long strip of, of property. He goes all the way through the southern kingdom. He goes to Beersheba, which is about on the southern tip. And then he leaves his servant in Beersheba and then goes into the wilderness, the Bible says. He goes on alone into the wilderness, meaning that he more or less left all of Israel proper and is now in a sort of uncharted wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and he prayed that he might die. He's actually trying to commit suicide via God. He says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. So I gotta ask you a question. Who is this guy? It's not the Elijah we know. It's not the Elijah that we've come to appreciate. What's happened to him? If you've ever been around somebody who was a powerful leader who experienced burnout, you've probably asked the same question. Who is this person? Because they're not who I'm used to being around. 
What happened to Elijah? Well, I'll tell you what happened to Elijah. Behind the scenes, Elijah became exhausted during the shutdown. During those years of day after day, the stress of dealing with Ahab and Jezebel and the drought and all of these sorts of things, it just hit him over and over again, over and over again, just chipped away at him, a little piece at a time. See, being a man of God doesn't mean that you don't get chipped away at by the stresses, and it would just nag at him and and come after him day after day, and he wasn't really aware, but I think there was a certain point where he began to operate on adrenaline, even though the truth is the passion that he had originally had and sort of the drive that he originally had had been pretty much burned up, used up, exhausted. Really quickly, I just wanna walk you through four things exhausted people do. And we see all four of these in Elijah. The first thing is they run away from what they used to run toward. I mean, check out what Elijah does. He fl- he, he, the Bible says he fled for his life and he goes away from Israel. Israel was his home. Israel was his ministry. His heart was there. If you'd pulled Elijah out of Israel, he would have run back to Israel because that's where he belonged. He knew that's where he belonged. But now... He goes away from the ministry that God has called him to instead of toward it. He was always moving toward God's call for the first time in his life. You see him literally running away from where God, the center of where God had him. This is a profound feature of burnout in the Christian life is that the things that we used to, that used to drive us, the things that we used to know were God's calling in our life, we begin to withdraw from. We're passionate about our family life, but we begin to withdraw from our family. Oh, maybe we're going through the the motions yet, but we're not as invested as we were before. Our job is is about going through the motions. Maybe we were passionate about doing it before, but now we're just stuck on Zoom meetings and everything is so weird and it's just so difficult to keep going through it. And we're going through the motions, but we're firing on adrenaline and the passion isn't there anymore. And we get to the point where we start to pull away from what we know we should do rather than move toward it. Well, that's the first thing. The second thing that people do is they isolate themselves from others. The number one thing that you have in your life to deal with stress is the people around you, your social support, your family, your cluster of friends, the people in your close sphere. But what will happen is when a person begins to, to get burnt out, they'll begin to pull away from those people. Like you see with Elijah that he left his servant there. This person had been with him through the thick and thin of the difficult times, and if anybody was in a position to encourage and bolster Elijah up, and what he was going through, it would have been Elijah's servant. And yet, in this moment, Elijah didn't want to be around anybody. It's a typical feature of burnout. We, want, we don't, want to, don't want to be around anybody. We just want to be around ourselves because it's a point at which we're withdrawing from everything. Third thing is, they rewrite the story of their past in the most negative kind of light. And you see that with Elijah. Look at what he says. He says, take my life for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Well, fortunately, because we have the Old Testament, we have a really good account of Elijah's life. And we might argue with Elijah and say, man, don't you get it? You, you, you did really well. You did really fantastic up to this point. But what will happen to a person who's dealt with chronic stress to the point where they're starting to have a breakdown is they will begin to look back on the past story of their life and they will rewrite it in the most negative possible light. <clears throat> About 10 years ago, my dad went through a profound period of just physical and emotional exhaustion, sort of a physical and emotional uh, breakdown of sorts. And I remember talking with him and him questioning the extent to which God had used him in his life up until that point. And anybody who'd known my dad would say, but 
We could give you chapter and verse and example over and over again of how God has used you, but when a person is, is burned out and when chronic stress is sort of seeped into the point that it sort of causes a breakdown, we begin to rewrite history and say that it was meaningless, it wasn't important. People who are watching this video that are high performers, you're the ones who need to worry about this the most because you're that person who puts the carrot out in front of you about five feet, and you run faster than anybody else trying to chase that carrot. You do this intentionally. You never celebrate the victories because the victory of yesterday is just a mile marker towards getting to the victory of tomorrow. And you are absolutely determined that you're gonna keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing, but the truth is, there is no goal in sight because tomorrow you're gonna set the goal farther than you set the goal yesterday. That was Elijah. So no wonder he was downplaying his victories. They never were victories for him. It was just something that when he was looking at it in his windshield, it was a worthy goal. But when it was in his rearview mirror, it must have not been that big. If I, was able to, if I was able to go through that and make it through, it must have not been that big. And tomorrow's challenge is the big one. They rewrite history. And then the fourth thing is they assume the worst about the future and they consider quitting. Look at what Elijah said, take my life. He's trying to commit suicide via God. This is a particularly important thing to think about as, as a pastor, my heart's been broken over the past couple of years as I've seen pastors of large ministries, some of them very involved in suicide prevention that have taken their own lives. There's something about getting exhausted that makes you question tomorrow, whether tomorrow is even meaningful at all. And yet, one of the first things we're gonna see from God is that that is one of the most dangerous tools of Satan is to convince you that your past doesn't matter and your future doesn't matter. That is to downplay what God has done in your life in the past and what God could do in the future. It's not about your ability, it's about what God could do through you. So quickly, I just wanna ask the question, what is God's response? And we're gonna finish out with this. We're just gonna talk about a few things that God does to respond to Elijah. God is the great physician. Um, so that means that not only is he the great physician, he's the great psychotherapist. And this is a point in time when Elijah needs a great psychotherapist and God is going to play that role. And what you're gonna see first is that God is gonna make sure that he's taking care of his physical needs. One of the things that happens when you deal with chronic stress is you begin to not pay attention to the most basic physical needs that you have, and particularly diet, sleep, and exercise. Now I know as I'm saying this and you're sitting in your living room, potentially, watching this message, some of you are feeling the stare of your spouse fall upon you as I'm talking about this. And it's not happening because um, they're being critical of you um, or they think that you're mishandling something. It's they're worried about you. And they know that you're not taking good enough care of yourself because you're so stressed out that you're not getting the sleep that you need to get. You're not watching your uh, diet like you should and you're certainly not getting the exercise that you should be getting. You say, now Jonathan, that sounds kind of you know, non-biblical, this diet, sleep, and exercise business. Oh no, it's very biblical, check this out. Um, when Elijah says, I want God to take me out. God says, okay, meet me on this mountain. So Elijah's got this big journey to take towards this mountain. So he takes a nap at first. He lays down and slept under the broom tree. Um, but as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. See, the thing about it was Elijah um, was not really good about making sure he was eating at regular times and eating enough. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread and baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. So the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. 
See, what's happening during this period of recovery, and a period of recovery is absolutely necessary. There's nothing I can tell you. If you've been dealing with chronic stress and you're dealing with a breakdown, there's nothing I can tell you that will suddenly make you snap out of it and be ready to go tomorrow. There is a period of recovery that is needed. And you notice that Elijah's recovery has already involved sleeping because he was not doing well at sleeping. So now he's sort of in a period of time where he's sleeping more than he's ever slept before. And the angel of the Lord's made him eat twice because he hasn't been taking care of his physical needs in terms of his diet. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. So what does God make him do? He makes him take a nap, he makes him eat something, and he makes him take a very long walk. So diet, sleep, and exercise. See? It's in the Bible. Um, so now, Elijah shows up at the mountain. Now, on the mountain, you got to wonder, what does Elijah think he's going to the mountain for? Well, um, Elijah has prayed for some pretty amazing things. He's prayed for the restoration of life for a child. He's prayed for fire to come down from heaven. And in general, when Elijah has prayed for things, they've happened. Now Elijah prays that God will take him out. My hunch is Elijah believes he's going to the mountain so God will take him out. So you've got this point at which Elijah comes to a cave in the mountain. He spends the night and the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So now there's this conversation going on between him and God. Okay, so Elijah says, God and I are gonna have a conversation. Then he's gonna zap me. So Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And so God says, okay, go out and stand before me on the mountain. Elijah said, see, I, I knew this is how it was going to go. This is where I, I get zapped. And now it's, you know, there's going to be a scorched mark on the earth where I used to be. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. And in Tornado Alley, we totally get this. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What is God trying to do? I've heard all kinds of explanations. In Bible college, people had a meaning for everything. They had a meaning for the storm. They had a meaning for the earthquake. They had a meaning for the fire. Maybe it is that complex. I don't think it is. I think God was trying to demonstrate to Elijah, look, if I wanted to zap you, could have done it any old time. If I wanted to take you out, I got a, so many different ways I could do it. You have no idea. But you're still breathing. You're still on this planet. You still have a purpose. And it's time to re-engage. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, Elijah is going to give the same explanation. He's going to say, look, I've done everything I could, but the people of Israel are impossible. They've messed this whole thing up. Everything I've tried to do They've made impossible, so, you know, I, I got nothing. God's going to give him a couple more instructions, and then we're going to be done. The second instruction God gives him is, go back the way you came. Check this out. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came. See, Elijah had gone from the place where he was supposed to be. He had withdrawn. He'd withdrawn from everything that mattered, and now God is saying, you're going to have to go back and re-engage with the things that really matter. It's not about the tasks it's about where I've called you to be. It's about the relationships that I've called you to be in. It's about going back to the place where you're supposed to be. I say that because it's important for you to know that adrenaline will help you keep putting one foot in front of the other. And a lot of us are doing that during the COVID crisis. You've been doing that. You've been putting one foot in front of the other. Adrenaline will do that, but it will not necessarily put one foot in, the other, in front of the other in the right direction. 
Adrenaline is not a, it will not make sure that you go where you're supposed to go. It will just keep you going. And that's the thing. Elijah kept putting one foot in front of the other, but there came a point at which it was in the wrong direction. And God was saying, look, you know, it's really not something that's to be desired to just function on adrenaline. There's a point at which you've got to function on God. There's a verse that many of us are familiar with in Psalm 46 where the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. Elijah didn't like to be still. And as a person who's a poster child for ADHD, I get it. I don't like to be still either. But there are moments where moving is not what, we've called to, what we're called to do. We're called to be still and wait for God to show up. This is also in Isaiah 40 where the Bible says, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. So there's an extent to which if we want to not be burnt out, if we want to be energized, there's a time when until God has given us the word, we need to wait for him to give us the next move. God's motto is never just keep moving. That's something we've heard from culture. That's not God's motto. God's motto is always just stay right with me. Sometimes that means we're moving really fast, but sometimes it means we're standing still and waiting for God to move. And then the last thing that I want to share with you is that God says, look, let me write the story. Let God write the story. Instead of you getting down on your past and getting down on the future, recognize that there's so much about the impact that you've made on this planet that you don't know. Check this out. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came, travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram and then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel and anoint Elisha, who will be Elijah's successor, son of Shaphat from the town of Abel Mehalah to replace you as my prophet. By the way, um, notice how much God is emphasizing relationship during this time. Anyone who escapes from Hazel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed to Baal or kissed him, meaning that those 7,000 people have never bowed to Baal, meaning in, during, during Elijah's time, they've never done that. And God is saying, Elijah, you've impacted at least 7,000 people's lives. See, it's so often that we'll overestimate our failures and we'll underestimate the impact that we've made on this world. It's really something that God is trying to tell Elijah. Look, let me write the story, will you? I know, I know the truth. I'm, I'm keeping count. And by the way, isn't that cool that God said, I'm keeping count. I know, I know the real story here. You're doing well. You're doing fine. You're just gonna have to work with me instead of trying to do all this on your own. I'm talking to somebody right now. You're really burned out. You're really just exhausted. And this time, this COVID time, it just sucks the life out of you. And God is saying to you, look, you've done better than you thought. Your future is better than you could possibly imagine. Just wait on me. When the time is right, we'll move together forward. By the way, as I'm finishing up this message, and this is something that's typical here at New Spring, we want to make sure that if you are watching this for the first time, and, and this is like all kind of new to you, and you're like, wow, this relationship with God thing, Elijah being able to connect with God and God caring so much about him, I, I want to be in a relationship with a God that cares about me like that. Well, that's possible. We can do that. God has already done everything that is required for you to have a relationship with him. All that remains is for you to say yes. I'm gonna go through a very simple prayer with you if you'd like, and we're gonna do this together. You can just follow along phrase by phrase, and if you'd like, you can pray along with me, and you can have that relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. Thank you that he rose again so that I could have life. 
Now I pray that you will make me a member of your family, that you'll forgive me for the things that I've done wrong. Now I trust you with my life and I wanna follow you in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer with me, we wanna do something special for you. If you would take out your phone and text PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97000000, we have a really special gift box we'd like to send you. It has things that will help you in your new journey with uh, God. If you're in the continental U.S., we're gonna send that to you in a, in a box. Um, if you're outside the continental U.S., uh, we'll get your uh, electronic email address. We'll, we'll get this to you digitally. Um, so thank you so much for watching today, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.